A Florida woman has botched an election and corrupted democracy. We will examine the shenanigans in Florida and why Democrats are simply incapable of ever conceding an election. Then, the left gets honest about abortion and immigration. Michelle Obama calls Donald Trump a racist and a misogynist. And Trump deals deftly with foreign leaders in France. Finally, a Veterans Day glimmer of hope that the left and the right might just maybe tone down some of the antipathy. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. So much to get to today, so much going on all around the world, and most especially in that epicenter of botched elections and pure political corruption, Florida. Uh, this woman, Brenda Snipes, the Broward County Elections Supervisor, is b now performing cartoonishly corrupt acts that are threatening the integrity of our democracy as the Democrats just keep digging and digging in those graves to find a few more dead people and uh, fictional people to go vote for them and hopefully push them over the edge in that governor's race and that Senate race. We'll get to that in a second, but first, let's make a little bit of money with Lending Club. This is a good way to do it. This is literally a way to get access to more money. For decades, credit cards have been telling us, buy it now, pay for it later with interest. And you know that it isn't just a little bit of interest. Those become very high interest rates. And despite your best intentions, that interest can get out of control. With Lending Club, you can consolidate your debt or pay off your credit cards with one fixed monthly payment. Since 2007, Lending Club has helped millions of people regain control of their finances with affordable fixed rate personal loans. No trips to the bank, no high interest credit cards. This is very important to me as a millennial in particular because I don't want to go anywhere when I don't have to. I just want to sit on my couch. Go to LendingClub.com, tell them about your, well specifically go to LendingClub.com slash Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S. Uh, tell them how much you want to borrow, what terms are right for you. If you're approved, the loan is automatically deposited into your bank account in as little as a few days. You don't even need to take a picture of the check. It's just that easy. LendingClub.com slash Knowles. Check your rate in minutes. Borrow up to 40 grand. LendingClub.com slash Knowles. K-N-O-W-L-E-S. LendingClub.com slash Knowles. All loans made by WebBank. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. Florida. Florida, what are you doing? You might have thought... You, you foolish you, you might have thought that the elections were over on Tuesday night. Maybe they went into Wednesday morning. You know, a week ago, now six days ago. But you would be wrong. And you would be wrong for two reasons. One, because Democrats are not capable ever of conceding any elections. Al Gore is still looking for votes to become president in 2000. Hillary Clinton, I think she's the real president. I'm pretty, I think she's technically the president, even though she didn't win the election. She's still going to find all those votes. Uh, so uh, one reason, Democrats refuse to concede elections. Second reason, Florida. <laughs> Just Florida, specifically Broward County and uh, Palm Beach counties. Um, so Broward County, you remember them. That's uh, where there was that awful school shooting there, and a ton of corruption among those elected officials. Uh, total negligence. Uh, they weren't paying attention to threats. They were just dumping kids back into the system. The sheriffs were passing the buck. I mean, just awful corruption there. This has bled over into the elections. Broward County Election Supervisor Brenda Snipes is discovering every day more and more votes that were cast for Democrats that just, whoops, they forgot to see them on election night. Oopsie daisy. Well, okay, that's fine. Overturn the elections. Republican Ron DeSantis, he didn't really win. And... Uh, 
uh, Scott, Rick Scott, the former governor of Florida, Republican candidate for Senate. He didn't really win. It's actually socialist Andrew Gillum. He's about to become the governor now. He conceded the race, by the way. Democrat socialist Andrew Gillum. He has now unconceded because that's Florida for you. So uh, right now, according to Politico, um, this woman, Brenda Snipes, the Broward County election supervisor, is expected to be removed from office. That's good, but it's about 15 years too late. This woman came in. She's been in this job since 2003. She has already been found uh, or, or accused uh, and uh, found in violation of counting unlawful votes, destroying ballots, sunshine law violations, those are transparency violations, missed deadlines, uh, just within the last couple of years. After the 2016 election, she was caught red-handed destroying election ballots within 12 months. You're supposed to keep those ballots for 22 months to make sure that you don't do some nefarious election meddling and then try to cover your tracks. Looks like she was covering her tracks. Uh, in, also in 2016, she left a ballot proposition off of the ballot. <laughs> there was a ballot proposition regarding medical marijuana. It was left off of the ballot, probably because people were using too much of that Haitian oregano and they managed not even to include it on some of the ballots. Not all the ballots. Some had it, some didn't. A total mess. Also in 2016, granted, she's been in this job 15 years. These three are just within the last two years. In 2016, Broward County posted the election results to their website before the polls closed. I don't know. They must have been clairvoyant. They must have been telepathic to just know that people were going to vote for Democrats. They must have just known how things were going to go. So they posted that obviously a major violation to post-election results before the polls close. Uh, in 2012, so going back four years, uh, this woman, Brenda Snipes, discovered a thousand new ballots, uncounted ballots, one week after the election. They just turned up. Whoopsie-daisy. In 2004, there were 58,000 mail ballots, mail-in ballots, that were not delivered to voters. So voters never had the opportunity to fill it out or mail it back to the government. That's not even just finding 1,000 votes in a closet somewhere. That's 58,000 people didn't get their votes. So amidst all of this, the races have tightened. The races for uh, Senate and for governor. Ron DeSantis running against Andrew Gillum, the socialist, for governor, and Republican Rick Scott running against Democrat Bill Nelson for the Senate. And what you're seeing on CNN, NBC, MSNBC, New York Times, wherever, is that the polls are tightening. Right, they're tightening because they're discovering a bunch of fraudulent ballots. That's why. <laughs> You've got to call it like it is. Right now, Rick Scott, the Republican, is only up 0.25% on uh, Nelson. So that's uh, 12,500 votes or less. This triggers a hand recount of the election. Ron DeSantis, the Republican, is up less than half a percentage point on Andrew Gillum. That's less than 33,700 votes. In Florida, that triggers a machine recount right away. So now they're tightening up. In uh, Broward and Palm Beach County, they found there was a teacher at, at a polling place, an elementary school, who went into a closet and just magically found a box of provisional ballots waiting in there. I want, this brings us to the definition of a word, by the way, provisional ballot. Uh, when Democrats discover provisional ballots days after the election, the provision that those ballots seek to rectify is that Republicans won the election. 
That's the provision. So just in, in case Republicans win an election, there's a provision which is called inventing a bunch of fake ballots uh, to go in there. So uh, Town Hall right now is reporting Laura Loomer saw that a bunch of other provisional ballots were found in a rental car at a Fort Lauderdale airport. They were found in the trunk of the car. You can actually see, some people have been posting this around Twitter, uh, that these boxes of ballots were being transported in private cars. They were being loaded onto rental trucks. Here's just, here's just one example of a guy who happened to see it happening. I know it's dark and it's hard to see. I think by two ladies just walked up there with the provisional ballots walking back into the precinct. And a bag of like, you know, the paper ballots. And I said to them, I go, what, you just can carry those around? And they said, no, the truck left them. But the truck's right here, so I'm not real sure what the hell's going on here. But I don't think it's right. Yeah, I don't think it's right either. I don't think that's right. People are throwing those ballots around like it's Monopoly money down in Broward County. And look, we've had uh, difficult races for years in Florida, constant incompetence. But And th that's what Democrats are trying to blame this on right now. They're trying to blame it on incompetence. It's not incompetence. It's corruption. It, I know. I, maybe this woman is also incompetent. She clearly is because she doesn't cover her tracks very well. But this is also rank corruption because these people will not concede a race. Marco Rubio has been tweeting this out. He's been tweeting out updates from the election and the ongoing election and how days and days and weeks and weeks go by. Democrat Andrew Gillum, who had already conceded the race, then unconceded, and he said every vote is going to count. It's going to count if it takes a week or a week and a half or two weeks or whatever. And it is true. They're counting a lot of ballots. There are reports of ballots coming out that only have one candidate filled in, just one Democrat candidate, imagining that scores of people are showing up only voting for one person, Andrew Gillum, and then leaving the polling place. Obviously absurd. So the, I think the fact that Rubio is tweeting this out tells us something. Rubio is not a shoot-from-the-hip kind of guy, generally. He's usually pretty thoughtful. He's sometimes a little too cautious. And he is calling this out for what it is, rank corruption. Uh, also right now, one of the little hidden stories in this is that the two Democrat campaigns that we're talking about, Gillum and Nelson, are objecting to a judge rejecting non-citizen ballots. This came out, we saw a transcript from the court, because they're fighting this out. They're going to be fighting this out in court for a while now. And a judge uh, rejected one ballot because it was a, a, a non-U.S. citizen. And both uh, Gillum's camp and Nelson's camp objected to that. They are now openly saying, we want non-citizens' votes to be counted. And there's a great irony here, which is that that vote in particular, the one that was ineligible because the person was not a U.S. citizen, it, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking Latin American, cross the border illegally. No, that wasn't the problem. It was a name that seems Eastern European or Russian, Katya, and it was described that way as a phonetic spelling because it was obviously a foreign name, which means, I think conclusively, that the Democrats are colluding with the Russians. That's just a little side part of this story, but it certainly does seem to be the case. Consider this. We are now six days out from this election. The Republicans won. We know that they won. They got more votes. We knew it that night. We knew it the next morning. We know it today. How many votes were cast in Broward County in that election? I'm not saying how many votes were cast for one person or the other. I'm just saying how many total votes were cast. We don't have an answer for that. 
Brenda Snipes can't give us an answer for that, the election supervisor. Nobody can seem to give us an answer for how many votes were cast. Something is clearly terribly wrong if they can't even get a number of the people who went to the polls. And the reason that we can't get that number is because of all this corruption. But you've got to go after it. You've really got to go. This is the same reason why we've got to go after all of the fake accusers who made up stories against Brett Kavanaugh, who perjured themselves in some cases. The, the reason we have to go after them is because if we don't punish them, it sets up a precedent whereby it will encourage more people to do this. Right now, uh, Christine Ford has made a million dollars and got a book deal off of her testimony about which there are many questions, testimony that contradicted itself many times, very suspect, highly not credible. She's gotten a lot out of that. And after afterward, more and more people came up and made up wholly false stories. Fortunately, in that case, uh, accusers like Julie Swetnick are now being criminally investigated, Michael Avenatti, who is pushing and pimping out women to make false claims, uh, he's being criminally investigated. We need we need people in Broward County who are engaging in this kind of corruption to be wearing orange jumpsuits pretty soon. It's that serious because especially in a swing state like Florida that can decide whole elections, uh, you know, uh, certain counties can decide governor, can decide Senate, can decide the president. You've got to make sure that you've got election integrity and Democrats don't have a whole lot of that. This is also the moral hazard of turning election day into election season. You hear this all the time from the left. They say, we need more time to vote. It used to be election day. There was one day. Now we need more time early voting. We need Everybody should get a mail-in ballot. People should have to opt out of mail-in ballots. We have all of these mail-in ballots coming in, all of these provisional ballots being cast. We saw undercover from Project Veritas that election workers were encouraging non-citizens to vote around this country. That's the trouble is when it goes on for days and days and weeks and weeks, to vote, then the counting of those ballots tends to go on for days and days and weeks and weeks because there's just so much more room for shenanigans. And this is the downside of that. Uh, for years, when the left has tried to make Election Day far wider, because the left is much better at stealing elections than the right. You know, I'm not saying Republicans have never tried to pull a dirty trick or nothing, but the Democrats really seem to have made an industry out of it. They really made it out of the political machines, Tammany Hall. They, they've just mastered it. There's Chicago machines that still exist. We elected a Chicago machine politician to be president in Barack Obama. They're just really good at it. Giving them more time gives them more opportunity to steal elections. And this is the flip side of it, is when you, you they say, why wouldn't you want more voting? You say, because I want every vote to count. And when you al allow these sorts of shenanigans to go on, you're canceling out people's votes. M more votes is not always the best thing in the world, especially when uh, some of those votes are fraudulent. We already know that many of the votes down there are fraudulent. And every fraudulent vote that's cast negates, deprives a fellow American of their own right to vote. It takes a vote away from every single one of them. Uh, you don't hear that too much, but... That's the way it is, and I think uh, Republicans have, have shied away from this issue. They should embrace it because it, it's really serious, and you're never going to beat Democrats at this game. You're never going to beat them at stealing elections and machine politics. Not that you would want to in the first place. It's it's wrong. It's, it's very unethical, but also, technically speaking, you're just never going to beat them. They've got too much practice at it. Now, if Democrats are being dishonest in Florida, which they are, they are at least now being honest on a couple of issues like 
like abortion and illegal immigration. You might have seen this ad. There is now an ad for Planned Parenthood. It wasn't put out by Planned Parenthood, but it was put out by a left-wing organization supporting Planned Parenthood, supporting abortion rights. It is the most honest abortion ad that has ever been made. Take a look. So you see a cute little baby wearing one of those pink hats, like from the Women's March. It says, she deserves to be loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, she's so cute. Look at that little baby. Oh, how... She deserves to be wanted. Yep. Uh, yes, that would be nice. Okay, still. There's no way that they could turn this cute ad into the worst thing ever made, could they? She deserves to be a choice. Oh, they did it. Okay, they did it. They turned a very cute ad of a baby into absolutely a horrifying monstrosity. Hashtag stand with PP, Planned Parenthood, AP Action Fund. This was produced by something called the Agenda Project. I kid you not, when I saw that ad, I refused to cover it. I didn't want to tweet about it because I was certain that it was a right-wing hoax. I was certain of it, and I didn't want to be accused of spreading fake news. I said, it's so on the nose. You know, the trouble with us right-wingers, we're just not creative enough. We're just, I don't know, we're not subtle enough. Oh no, it was a real ad. It's so horrifying. Now, the thing I like about this ad is that it's honest. The Agenda Project, it's a legit organization. It's a left-wing organization. It's promoting a progressive agenda. And this is to help out their friends, Planned Parenthood. And, uh, but it's so honest about every point. First of all, it shows the baby. So often in the debates about abortion, you'll say, well, unborn babies shouldn't be killed in the womb. And they'll say, don't call it a baby, it's a fetus. And then you point out to them that the word fetus just means baby. It just means offspring. <laughs> it's a Latin word. And they say, well, that's just semantics. And you say, right, semantics means meaning. Never mind, we're digressing here. So they show the baby, first of all. You say, thank you. Thank you for being honest there. And then they use the correct pronoun. Because when the left talks about fetuses, they say it. It's not a life. It's not living. It's not a human. It's not a baby. But this advertisement says she. It says, she deserves to be loved. She deserves, she deserves. So it's admitting this is a person. It ha- there is a pronoun here. She has a personality. She has characteristics. Okay. And what's interesting then about the subtext, or the rather the captioning, is that it's almost entirely wrong. It actually gets everything completely backwards. And I think this is how they get their logic backwards, too. So even that the first sentence, she deserves to be loved. No, she doesn't. Nobody deserves to be loved. This is actually sort of the, the basis of all of, our, uh, uh, all of our thought about ourselves, about humanity, about God, theology, philosophy, is that mankind is imperfect. We are not perfect. We're broken. We're flawed. There is original sin. We have fallen out of the garden. We're never going to be perfect. We're always going to sin. That is the trouble. The trouble is that we actually don't deserve to be loved. We want to be loved, and we can love other people, and it's a beautiful thing when we are loved, but we don't deserve to be loved. The second line in there, they say, she deserves to be wanted. This isn't true at all. It is not the just desert of people to be wanted. It is not no, human beings do not deserve to be wanted. All of human history shows this to be right. Even today, even today in the United States, 37% of U.S. births are unintended. For all of human history, virtually everybody alive has been alive because 
you know, someone had a little too much fun one night and mom and dad went out to the barn or whatever. But it's not that it was planned. The whole idea of planned parenthood is a very new notion. People come out and then they bring great joy to the world and they bring abundance and they bring their creative energies and they bring their contribution. And we're all so grateful for the gift of life. That's why you see pro-life billboards that say, smile, your mother chose life. But it's not that you are wanted. Even today in America, with rampant abortion, uh, ubiquitous uh, uh, prophylactics, ubiqu ubiquitous birth control methods, 37% of U.S. births are unintended. And just look at those numbers. Four million babies are born in the United States every year. One million babies are aborted. 20% of babies conceived each year in the United States are aborted. For a little under, actually a little more than that, and a little under 4 million are born. Imagine that number before widespread legal abortion. Imagine that number before the invention of the condom. Imagine, imagine what those numbers were. And so the final line they say here is, she deserves to be a choice. And obviously that's horrifying because you look at this cute little baby who's smiling at you and you say, no, 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 I don't want, don't, no, only choose one thing. Don't, you can't choose anything to do with that cute little baby. But it tells you so much about the philosophy and ideology of the left that the highest good, their final line, the one, two, three, the last punch, is choice. That is the high. Better than love, better than being wanted or appreciated, it's choice. And this is an absurd idol. Sometimes you get this a little bit on the right too. People make a total idol out of choice. Choice for choice's sake. This was the argument for slavery. The argument for slavery was states' rights. Now, broadly, I like states' rights. I like our federalist experiment. I enjoy the separation of powers between the federal government, the state government, and the local governments. But states don't have the right to do anything. And when you're talking about slavery, the reason why states' rights is such a ridiculous euphemism is because of the obvious question. States' rights to do what? To do what? Our system of government allows certain rights, the philosophical underpinnings of our civilization, permits certain rights, but it prevents other rights. And obviously this is the case for abortion. They say on the left that if you oppose abortion, you're anti-choice. I'm anti-certain choices. <laughs> I'm for other choices. The choice to do what? There, there are certain choices that I think are bad but should be legal. There are certain choices that are bad but constitutional. There are certain choices that are awful and should not be legal, should not be permitted, and the force of the state should prevent those choices, one of which is abortion. Because abortion stops a beating heart, because abortion stops that little baby. We, she does not deserve to be a choice. That, actually, the only uh, the, the, I think the only thing we can say about this commercial definitively is she does not deserve to be a choice. She's a human. She's a, an individual human life. She's, she should not be killed without due process before she has the chance to smile and be in that commercial. Truly wicked stuff. But at least you've got to give them credit for being honest. They're also being honest on immigration. So this is another issue that you know. You remember before the midterm elections, there was all of this talk about the caravan moving up from uh, Honduras to Guatemala to Mexico it was going to come into the United States. And it showed Democrats' hands because Republicans were making a big deal out of this. Donald Trump made it a major final pitch for the midterm elections. Stop illegal immigration. 
And Democrats couldn't answer. If they were smart, they would have said, we don't want lawless caravans rolling into the United States. But instead, they did two things. They denied that the caravan even existed in the first place. And then when you showed them video of it, they said, oh, it's fine. It's not a big deal. Stop. Oh, come on now. Here's CNN's Chris Saliza. Here's his reporting mocking people who oppose illegal immigration. It's also far less scary than Trump is working hard to make it out to be. So why is he doing it then? Well, for political gain, duh. Trump has weaponized fear of rampant illegal immigration among his supporters since he became a candidate for president back in 2015. And now, with the midterm elections just days away, Trump is amping up his rhetoric even more. Not only painting a picture of a ravaging horde charging toward our borders, but suggesting that there may be some terrorist elements who are using the caravan to secure entry into the U.S. How does a person with that voice become the chief political guy for CNN? Oh my gosh, I, how, I don't even know how to do that. You know, my, uh, my, my voice is a couple octaves lower, so I don't even know if I could even, but just that, wow, wow, oh my gosh, that's just CNN, CNN in a larynx. But what he's saying is also awful too. It's not just how he's saying it. He, part of how he's saying it is that he's mocking people who have these concerns. Uh, and, and it's that constant condescension that you get from Vox.com, you get it from CNN where they say, come on, it's not really a big deal. No, it is a big deal. It's a big deal when people break our laws and invade our country and access the social safety net. Here are the facts. Uh, there was an illegal alien who just murdered three people in the United States. He uh, murdered three people after a sanctuary release. He was in jail. ICE wanted to pick him up. And the jail that he was being held in, Middlesex County Jail in New Jersey, ignored ICE's requests. They would not turn this guy over to ICE when he was released from jail because they supported giving him sanctuary. This is what sanctuary cities do. They end up with uh, people who uh, commit violent crimes when they should have been deported. It's a 23-year-old Mexican national. He killed two men. He wounded two others. He killed a, a woman the next day. And Middlesex County Jail doesn't care. They ignored the detainer placed by ICE. They wanted this guy to roam free. Immigration, illegal immigration in particular, has become an increasingly difficult problem to deal with. There is a surge going on right now. What the left likes to point out, like Chris Hill is a, they say, oh, the caravan, it's not a big deal. It's, look, it was 15,000 people. Now it's only 1,000 or 2,000. That's not a big deal. And in a sense, they're right. It's not a big deal because thousands of people cross our borders every single day. Right now, we are seeing a surge in illegal immigration. Uh, this past month was 40% higher than any other month on record. We've seen a 400% spike since last year. Why has it spiked? It decreased dramatically when President Trump was elected because people thought that he would be very harsh to illegal aliens who came in. What they then learned is that our system, our legal system for immigration is so broken that not even Donald Trump could fix it. And so you saw those numbers flow over again. You're also seeing that because of all of the economic opportunity caused by the booming economy. Right now, uh, in certain areas along the border, there has been a 4,000% increase in arrests. In just the past month, Border Patrol caught 51,000 people. 
51,000 people. So you're thinking it's already one and a half people or one and a half thousand people per day. But then another 10,000 people showed up. They didn't cross the border and try to run and evade law enforcement. They showed up at the border and demanded to be allowed in. And what do we do? Because we have an absurd immigration policy. We let them right in. So now you're up to 2,000 people per day for the last month. What is the cost of that? Because Chris Salis is there. He's sitting in his lovely cocktail bar in Manhattan. He's swirling his, his Negroni and he says, oh, it's not a big deal that they come over here. It's very expensive. It's very expensive. It's not only a, a violation, it's not only so anti-American that the first act that these people commit once they're in the country is to violate our laws. But it's also expensive and it strains our social safety programs. It costs $10,000 to deport illegal aliens. That's just to deport them. Do you know how much it costs to keep them here? $70,000. It's seven times higher. You'll often hear people say, oh, immigration is a net benefit. Oh, these people are working hard. Oh, sure, that might be true. They might be great people who work hard and go to church on Sunday, but they cost the government a lot of money just to deport somebody, $10,000. But to keep them here, if you don't deport them, if they're just accessing social services, 70 grand per person, uh, these, these levels now are uh, uh, a new high. They've broken the record of 2011 during the feckless Obama foreign policy. And that is why nationalism is so popular now. There's a little tiff between the, the bromance of Donald Trump and French President Emmanuel Macron over the weekend. There's a little, a little lover's spat over the question of nationalism. We'll get to that in just a second. Uh, we'll also get to Michelle Obama reminding us all why she's so awful and a glimmer of hope on Veterans Day. A, an actual nice moment between the left and the right, a glimmer of hope. All of that, though, only once you go to dailywire.com. And what do you get if you subscribe to Daily Wire? Today, you will get the next chapter of Another Kingdom, Andrew Clavin's narrative podcast performed by little old me. Uh, today's subscribers get exclusive access to episode 7 titled The Secret of Horror Mansion. If you're not a subscriber, you can listen to the entire episode on Friday via YouTube or SoundCloud, but subscribers get to watch the full show, and they get to watch it with all the cool artwork, and it just looks really, really neat. So go over to dailywire.com right now, subscribe to watch the full the full first and second seasons of Another Kingdom. Also, what do you get? You get me, you get the Andrew Clavin Show, you get the Ben Shapiro Show. You get to ask questions in the mailbag. You get to ask questions in the conversation. You get to ask questions on backstage. You get all that stuff. Most importantly, you get the Leftist Tears Tumblr. I feel like you right now, if you haven't subscribed. I'm on the road, you know, I'm drinking my Kofefe out of this little paper cup, and it's, it's weakening. I can tell it's going gonna, it's gonna to get my clothes damp. You don't want that because this isn't FDA approved to handle the, the saline levels. Uh, saline, is that how you pronounce that word, saline? The salinity of the leftist tears is so strong that you cannot use any vessel other than a leftist tears tumbler. Go to dailywire.com. We'll be right back with a lot more. A little lover's spat on the question of nationalism. You remember a few weeks ago at the height of the midterm elections, President Trump came out, he said, thoroughly, I am a nationalist. Here he is. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. Yay! 
yeah, Trump, uh, great point. And he explains in that very speech, he says they're globalists and they're nationalists. They're people who think we should preserve our freedom in the nation state. They're people who think we should give away our national freedom to supernatural, uh, supernational and transnational bodies like the United Nations or the European Union that have no particular loyalty to us or our country or our people, um, but uh, we're going to give it away for some progressive fantasy of some global empire or something like that. He describes those differences. Emmanuel Macron, for, for, uh, Donald Trump's former buddy and the head of France, during an Armistice Day observance over the weekend, came out swinging in a jab that was clearly intended for President Trump. Patriotism. Patriotism is the exact opposite of nationalism. Nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism. In saying, our interests first, whatever happens to the others, you raise the most precious thing a nation can have, that which makes it live, that which causes it to be great, and that which is most important, its moral values. Okay, uh, sure, I guess. What he's trying to do is draw a distinction between nationalism and patriotism. He's not the first guy to do it. It's not only the left that does this. The right does this sometimes too. William F. Buckley Jr. was very fond of saying that uh, he was thoroughly a patriot, but he hadn't a drop of nationalism in him. And Rich Lowry, the current editor of National Review, has never been able to figure out quite what he meant by that. George Orwell wrote an essay describing the difference between patriotism and nationalism. And it's a lot of people drawing up a lot of false distinctions. There is no difference. It's love of country. Patriotism is love of country. And uh, I suppose as a, if there is any distinction at all, is, it is that nationalism is the formalized global structure of patriotism. It's love of country uh, defined within the borders of the nation state. Uh, but they're the same thing. They're, I've looked up many definitions of patriotism and nationalism. I've never really been able to see the great difference. I think it's a, a distinction without a difference. And so it's love of country. Okay, it's love of the nation state, which has been our system of global order more or less for 400 years. What does that mean? Why do we support nations? It's because when you have political bodies and when you have the world uh, identified and organized into political bodies that are too small, then things get a little chaotic. They get a little anarchic. When you have the world organized into political bodies that are too large, one empire or two empires, things become oppressive. You have unaccountable people governing you and quashing the rights and the liberties of nations. When you have nation states, that seems to be the sweet spot. And that's what President Trump is talking about. And Macron is saying that when you are a nationalist, you turn your back on the values that make our countries great. What values? What values is he talking about? You notice he never mentions the values. What is immoral? What is, uh, violates our values about the nation? You know, there was a time not so long ago that nationalism was our values when we said because of the values that undergird our civilization, we are going to break up our Western empires and give national sovereignty to former colonial powers. Indian nationalism was our values. Remember when that was, they say, 
these overseas empires, that's not our values. We need to give them the liberty to govern themselves. Now we've flipped it on its head because Western powers, as usual, are trying to colonize different places all over the world, all over not just their continent, but even beyond their continents. What does that mean, our values? Now, if that meant that we agreed that the West was a Christian, uh, a, a Christian place, that we had various nations here, but we all had Christian values, as was the case in the West for at least a thousand years and a little bit more than a thousand years, then maybe it would be okay. If we had that cultural and religious unity, then perhaps it would be okay to be a unified body. But we're not. What he's talking about, our values, is he's alluding to secularism liberal secularism, the project of the Enlightenment that tries to recreate the philosophical and ethical systems of the West without the God that made all of those systems. And it's just weak sauce. It's why when he talks about these things, when you hear someone try to draw these distinctions, it's never that convincing because they're just saying words that don't convey a lot of meaning. So how did President Trump respond? You remember, this is the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day, of the end of World War I, on the 11th of November at 11 in the morning. And 11, 11, 11. And so President Trump could have gotten up there and rebuked him or disagreed with him or punched back, but he didn't do it. And I think this was very smart. This underlines my contention that Donald Trump is not a reactive guy. He doesn't take things personally. He doesn't get petty. He isn't brought out of uh, by his brought about by his passions and easily excitable. I don't think he's that at all. I think he's quite meticulous and strategic about what he's doing, and that that's what he was doing here. He ignored Macron. They actually asked him what he thought about Macron's comments. He said, oh, they were nice. Yeah, they were heartwarming. Lovely. Great. Okay, whatever. Moving on. Because it wouldn't have been the place to do it. And had he refuted him there, they would say that he was uh, exploiting the remembrance of our fallen heroes of the First World War and exploiting Veterans Day and not living up to the ideals of the presidency. Okay, so he's going to wait and fight that one another day. Who cares what Macron thinks? He's the president of France. He would be the he would he would be the Vichy governor if it wasn't for us. So I don't really I don't really care. It, it, an irony too that France, a nation that's regularly tried to conquer uh, much of the world or given into powers that were conquering the world, is now lecturing us about how awful independent nations that protect the liberties of their constituents. How awful that is. Okay, give me a break. Uh, speaking of President Trump ignoring some hate directed at him. Michelle Obama is back. She is uh, reminding us how awful she is. She's got a new book coming out called Becoming. Is that not the most pretentious, left-wing deconstruction? Just this becoming. Oh, I'm just, I'm becoming. I'm, I'm Michelle Obama. I haven't done anything, but I am becoming. I'm me. I am be. I'm just being. And that's so good. Isn't that so wonderful? So she's out pushing this book, Becoming, and on the cover, you know, it says Becoming Michelle Obama, because the Obamas are perhaps the most narcissistic couple to occupy the Oval Office in modern history. And she's giving these, uh, she's giving these book tours now, doing all of the media tours, and she describes she goes right for Trump's throat. She describes how she was willing to rebuke him before the entire world at his inauguration. I made my own optic adjustment. I stopped even trying to smile. 
people want to hear more from you about what's currently going on. Mm -hmm. And there is a fine line that you and your husband, mm -hmm. as previous administrations have done, yeah. is that you have to step back and mm -hmm. let the current one do what it's doing. But I think it's safe to say that during your husband's presidency, it was no drama Obama. Mm -hmm. No drama Obama. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what goes through your mind when you read and hear all that's going on right now with this administration? I said what I continue to say. Being the commander-in-chief is a hard job, and you need to have discipline, and you need to read, and you need to be knowledgeable, you need to know history, you need to be careful with your words. Is that right, Michelle? You need to be careful with your words. Like, for instance, for instance, if Syria uh, threatens to use chemical weapons against its own people, and then, for instance, you draw a red line and you put the credibility of the United States and the United States military on that line and say, if you do this again, we're going to go in and stop you, and then Syria goes in and gasses its own people again and you do nothing, would that be an instance where your words matter and you need to choose your words carefully and you need to know history and you need to know the implications of the policies that you're pursuing? Is that right? is that, speaking of using your words carefully, would it be like, for instance, if you were a first lady of the United States, your husband had just been elected the first black president, and you said that the election of your husband was the first time that you were ever proud of your country? Would that, would that maybe be not the best choice of words? Should you maybe have chosen your words more carefully here? It's absurd. And of course, the woman interviewing Michelle Obama, I love the, the premises. She says, you know, I think it's safe to say that your, Obama's, uh, your husband's presidency was no drama Obama. Is that safe to say? Would you, is that safe? No drama like when you ignore the warning signs and the pleas for help from our consulate in Benghazi and then uh, Al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorists attack that on the anniversary of September 11th, and then you lie about it and cover it up and say it was caused spontaneously by a YouTube video, or when you're running guns down uh, across our southern border and then those guns are used to kill Americans, would that be maybe, or when you uh, criminalize, or when you politicize rather your internal revenue service to go after your political opponents and shut down right-wing groups, or when you politicize your justice department to also go after your political enemies, and would that be, would that be drama? Is that any drama, would you say? I don't know, is that maybe when you uh, try to take every little event that you can and exploit it to divide Americans along racial and sexual lines. Like for instance, when the Supreme Court makes a decision to randomly redefine marriage just cause, because Anthony Kennedy decided to become a romantic poet one night, and you uh, take this seriously divisive issue and then you paint the White House in rainbow colors in light. Is that, would that be an instance of that? Or when a Harvard professor is trying to break into his own home and there's a conflict with the local police department and you turn that into a national news story and say that the uh, police department acted stupidly. Would that be, and you'd make it a, an entirely racial question. Would that be, I don't, I could go on all day. I could go on all day, Michelle. <laughs> but then of course, I would miss the central point, which is that Michelle Obama has the explanation for every one of their own errors, for the whole reason that the U.S. ultimately rejected the Obamas, rejected the Obama legacy, and rejected all of the, all of the policies that Barack Obama tried to institute. Here's, can you guess, can you guess the reason? Here it is. Her book, she writes, Our presence in the White House 
had been celebrated by millions of Americans, but it also contributed to a reactionary sense of fear and resentment, among others. The hatred was old and deep and as dangerous as ever. Okay, it's racism. It's all, that's it. So they just don't like them because they're black, right? That's the only, it couldn't be all of the other, uh, all of the other issues like the terrible economy and the uh, trotting over all of our liberties and tr undermining the Constitution left and right and politicizing the federal. It couldn't be any of that. So she blames racism for everything. She takes no responsibility. This is classic uh, Democrat handbook. And then she calls Donald Trump a, a racist in the book. And then she says this, quote, what if someone with an unstable mind loaded a gun and drove to Washington? What if that person went looking for our girls? Donald Trump, with his loud and reckless innuendos, was putting my family's safety at risk. And for this, I'd never forgive him. You're doing the same thing. You're calling him, she calls him verbatim a misogynist in the book. She constantly implies that he's a racist. And then she uh, criticizes him for impugning Barack Obama's character and inciting the crazies. You are doing the same thing, Michelle, but of course she's not nearly introspective enough to see that. Navel-gazing, perhaps, but not introspective enough at all. So uh, it's an empty title, it's an empty memoir. I think my book is, has far more content than her, her book does. And, uh, but I want to leave us on a high note because it's Veterans Day, and there actually is a good sign of the country coming together and getting along, and shockingly we see this on Saturday Night Live because that guy, Pete Davidson, Ariana Grande's ex, who insulted Dan Crenshaw, the Republican congressman who lost an eye from an IED while serving in Afghanistan, he has come out and apologized, and they had a great bit about it. Here's Davidson. I mean this uh, from the bottom of my heart. It was a poor choice of words. Uh, the man is a war hero, and he deserves all the respect in the world. And if any good came of this, maybe it was that for one day, the left and the right finally came together to agree on something that I'm a dick. <laughs> you think? <laughs> so are we good? We're good. Apology accepted. Just keep breathing. So he plays the Ariana Grande song. He then goes on and roasts Davidson a little bit. But what a gentleman. All grace, all class, goes on, accepts the apology. And it's nice to see this. You never see Democrats doing this. Very rarely do you see Democrats doing this and forgiving and being graceful toward Republicans. You do sometimes see it with Republicans to Democrats, and that is nice when we see it. And then Crenshaw makes a serious point, and it's one I hope we can all listen to. But seriously, there's a lot of lessons to learn here. Not just that the left and right can still agree on some things, but also this, Americans can forgive one another. Who wants to live in a society without grace or in a society where we view our countrymen as our enemies rather than just our political opponents? A great line. And even over the weekend, you know, there were those awful fires in California. And James Woods, very conservative right-wing actor and now Twitter celebrity, he was helping out Alyssa Milano, a left-wing lunatic who is helping to run the Women's March, and she was there giving side-eye to Brett Kavanaugh during those hearings. Crazy left-wing lunatic. And James Woods was helping her out, retweeting pleas to get her horses out of town before the fire killed them. And uh, so that was pretty nice. Uh, Alyssa Milano and Deborah Messing, 
speaking of the Women's March, are now going out. They're calling out the anti-Semitism that we see in the Women's March. That is a pretty good thing. I think in part this is because Democrats have taken the House, and so it's calmed the Democrats down a little bit. They don't think that they're going to be out of power forever. They see that elections kind of ebb and flow. You're seeing a lot more grace on the part of Republicans here than on the part of Democrats, but uh, that's okay. That's, I understand Republicans are going to act more graceful and more mature in these situations. If the Democrats can come a little way too, that would go a long way toward helping us because ultimately we're all Americans. We're defended by the same people. We have the same enemies who want to kill us and we've got the same brave men and women who are out there defending us. So happy Veterans Day to all the veterans who are watching and, uh, and uh, an unexpectedly nice political note to end on before inevitably the Democrats try to steal some more elections in Florida tomorrow. But in the meantime, we can have a good day. Happy Veterans Day. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. I'll see you tomorrow. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Senia Villarreal. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer, Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Jim Nickel. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.